Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father God, as I stand here, Lord, my sincere desire is that people are interested and engaged with your word and that which I have prepared to share would uh, speak to people, feed them, encourage them, um, give them food for thought. I know, Lord, that we all need to come with ears of faith to be able to receive from you. just want to ask your blessing upon me, upon my words, my thoughts, and upon us all as we hear. Father, come and meet us in the passage, uh, in, in the pages of your word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our manner for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Saul is chosen to be king. And uh, I've got an introduction, and it's a very easy introduction. It follows the process of 1, 2, 3, 4. Uh, so 1, did you know that in the original Hebrew Bible, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were just a single book, one book, the book of Samuel. But the first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint, which happened about uh, two, uh, 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 happened in the second century BC, um, they divided it into two books and it's kind of stayed divided ever since. And tradition holds that the authors were three prophets who appeared during King David's reign, Samuel, Gad, and Nathan. So we've got one book becoming two books, but there are three divisions in the book of Samuel, and they are based around the three central characters. Uh, they are Samuel, Saul, and David. The introduction of each character marks a shift in the narrative. 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapters 1 to 8, is Samuel's story. Uh, 1 Samuel 9 to 15 is Saul's story. And then 1 Samuel 16 to 31 is David's story. And here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And it sees the introduction of Saul. Thus the book ceases to be Samuel's story and starts to be Saul's story, although Samuel still features, until David is introduced in chapter 16, when the book ceases to be Saul's story and starts to be David's story, although Samuel and Saul still feature. So that's our one, two, three, now our four. The history of Israel uh, saw Israel enter Egypt as a family uh, and exit Egypt as a nation. And as a nation, Israel was unique among all the nations of the world because it was governed by God. It's what we call a theocracy. And as a theocracy, Israel will go through a number of stages. It will go through four stages in its history. Each stage begins with the letter M. The first stage is the mediatorial stage, where it is governed by mediators. The first mediator was Moses, the second mediator was Joshua, then you had all the judges who were mediatory governing the nation of Israel. The second stage of uh, Israel's theocracy was the monarchical stage, where it was governed by kings. We'll see that starting this morning with uh, the, uh, Saul being chosen as king, and it goes from Saul right up to Zedekiah. The third stage is the ministerial stage, where, where Israel is governed by ministers. 
and we see that that's the stage that Israel is in at this moment in time, the current Prime Minister being Benjamin Netanyahu, of course. And then the fourth and the final stage of Israel's theocracy is it would be governed by the Messiah, the Messianic stage, Jesus Christ, which is what will happen when Jesus Christ returns again. Israel, as it currently stands, is out of fellowship with God. Uh, it is backslidden, but it is still God's nation and it is still God's people. The promises that God made to Abraham uh, concerning his descendants still stand today, uh, but it's not until Jesus Christ returns will they truly become a true theocracy, believing in God again. The reason I say all this is as we begin 1 Samuel chapter 9, we've got a major shift. Because we're shifting focus, first of all, to the second major character in the book, Saul. We start the second major division of the book as well, um, as we start looking towards the monarchy. And as a result, we begin that second stage of Israel's theocratic governance, the monarchical stage of uh, Israel's theocracy. So it's quite a significant chapter. Unfortunately, a lot of the story is pretty straightforward, so there's not a lot of application that I can get from it. So that's the most interesting bit that I put up front. You're going to have to stick with me for the rest of the talk, I'm afraid. Let's read uh, uh, the first, uh, let's read from verse one. So there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So first we are introduced to Kish. And his lineage is given to give his um, to show that he was truly from the line of Benjamin, that he was pure blood Jewish. Although we know nothing more about these forefathers that are listed as, as in his ancestral line, but we are told three things of significance. The first thing is he is a Benjamite. The second thing is he's a mighty man of power, and the third he had a choice and handsome son. So now there's the significance of Kish being a Benjamite is that while he may be father to the first king of Israel, scripture had already foretold that the king should come from the tribe of Judah and not Benjamin. So as we're reading this, uh, the fact that Saul is coming from Benjamin should set alarm bells in our minds. Something's not right here. And you see, one of the ultimate purposes of writing 1 and 2 Samuel is to show David's legitimacy as king because many would have thought he had usurped the throne from Saul the rightful king. Here one of the reasons for writing 1 Samuel is to show that it was always in God's plan for David to be the true king. The second thing that we've learned is that uh, Kish is a mighty man of power. That means he was a big man. It could mean that he was a strong man. It would certainly mean that he held a natural authority. We would say he had presence. And this attribute would be passed on to his son because his son was a big man. His son was a strong man. He had a natural authority and presence about him. A natural gifting that would position him as a suitable candidate uh, for king, in human eyes at least. 
And then, of course, the third thing we learn about Kish is he had a choice and a handsome son. Now, the word choice indicates that he was a young adult man, but he was single. He was available. But the word handsome indicates that he was attractive. We hear that he's tall, a clear head above everybody else. So he was quite a catch. And uh, he held the outward appearance of a man of virility and presence. Saul was the sort of man that would be instantly cast in the leading role of any movie. Physically, he fitted the part according to human eyes. But spiritually, did he fit the part according to divine eyes? Well, in due course, we will see clearly that he did not fit the part spiritually. Outwardly, he looked good. Inwardly, it was another kettle of fish. Now, it was always within God's plan for there to be a king over Israel. Provision was made for a king in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. But even earlier than that, when Jacob believed he was dying, he prophesied over every one of his 12 sons, and those prophecies spoke into their life about something about their character and what their future would be. And when it came to his son Judah, he said this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, what is the scepter? The scepter is a symbol of authority. A shepherd has a scepter, which was basically a stick or a rod, and he used it to divide the, to divide the sheep, to punish the sheep, uh, to protect the sheep from wolves, and uh, to lean on it when overseeing the sheep. But this prophecy spoke of Judah being the tribe from whom authority over all Israel would stem. It foreshadows a king who would divide the sheep of Israel, who would punish the sheep of Israel, who would protect the sheep of Israel, who would oversee the sheep of Israel. And this would ultimately be Messiah, but we know that Messiah would come through the Davidic line. The Davidic covenant, which will be established later in 2 Samuel, informs us that the Messiah would come through the kingly line of David, of the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin. Thus the king should come from Judah, not Benjamin. So you may well ask, well, why is God first appointing a king from the line of Kish and not the line of David then? Why is he doing this? Well, the simple answer is David wasn't born yet. David was 30 years old when he became king, it, we're told, in 2 Samuel 5 verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king. But we're told in Acts 13 verse 21, Saul reigned for 40 years. That means David wasn't born until 10 years into Saul's reign. God could not have chosen David to be king at this time because David wasn't around, even though David was God's choice. So then you might well ask, well, why did God not simply wait until David was born? And the answer to that is, Israel was impatient. The whole of our last talk in 1 Samuel chapter 8 saw that Israel were pushing for a monarchy. Israel were pushing for a king. And while God had made provision for a king, he didn't choose the timing for the establishment of a monarchy. Israel had forced the timing by demanding a king. Thus Saul was Israel's choice, 
not God's choice. Everything within the selection process of Saul met with human standards, qualifications and expectations of a king, but did not meet with God's requirements of a king. It was only David who met with God's requirements of a king. This is best summed up in Acts chapter 13, verses 21 to 22, which uh, says, and Acts chapter 13, 21 to 22, yeah, and afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Israel judged a man from the outward appearance. God judges man from the inward appearance. God looks at the heart. And David had the heart that Saul lacked. Anyway, let's... Uh, get to know Saul a bit more. Verses 3 to 5. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, his son Saul, please take one of the servants with you. Arise and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. And when they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So Kish has lost some donkeys. How you lose a donkey, I don't know. I mean, it's not like a set of car keys, is it? You can't kind of re-step your, re-take your steps and think, Well, where did I last see those car keys? Where did I last see that donkey? But, yeah, he's, he's lost a donkey, and uh, donkeys rather, and to misquote Oscar Wilde, to lose one donkey may be regarded as a misfortune, but to lose more looks like carelessness. And uh, this is more than sniffing of the air on the part of the donkeys, though. The Lord has orchestrated the wandering of these donkeys as a trigger to get Saul where he wants him to be. God wants Saul in a place where he will meet the prophet Samuel so that Samuel can anoint him king of Israel. And this is how God works in all of our lives. He can orchestrate circumstances to get us to the place that he wants us to be. Uh, It's what is called divine providence. And God's providence is in operation in all of our lives. God ordering circumstances around us to get us to the place that he wants us to be. And we have seen divine providence in the life of Calvary Chapel Maidstone. Uh, I was talking to Amy on the phone the other day, uh, and uh, Amy was in a place where she was looking for a new place to worship. And one morning she was praying in earnest that God would show her where she should go. It just so happened that she was in Tesco later that day, and who should she bump into but Ian and Francis? And they struck up a conversation, and as a result of that conversation, she was led to join us here at Calvary Chapel. Was that chance that she met Ian and Francis? No, it was divine providence at work in the life of Amy. I was talking to Brian on the phone yesterday, 
Brian was in a place where he was not looking for a new place to worship. He was quite happy where he was, I think. Um, but he'd been listening to online teaching from other Calvary chapels abroad. And as is the case with YouTube, they quite often come up with recommendations after your video. And if you don't do anything, it sometimes automatically plays the next video. So I don't know what Brian was doing. He'd been watching something or other and uh, maybe got himself up for a cup of tea, came and sit back down and what was playing? A video from Calvary Chapel Maidstone. And it kind of hit him and impacted him because he, couldn't realize, he didn't realise it was a Calvary Chapel just down the road. And that began a process that eventually led Brian to join us here at Calvary Chapel. Was that chance? No. That was divine providence. God orchestrating circumstances to get his people where he wanted them to be. Was Saul looking to become king? No, he wasn't. His father's donkeys going missing started a search that would result in him encountering Samuel and being anointed as king. Was this chance? No, it was providence, divine providence. So Kish puts an APB out on these lost donkeys and he tasks his son with uh, a search and rescue mission. And uh, I don't have a map showing you, but they lived in the territory of Benjamin. They would have gone north, northwest, up to the tribal territory. I've got to do it this way. I've got to do it symmetric in my mind. So they would have been in Benjamin. They would have gone northwest, up to the tribal territory of Ephraim. They would have gone through ter territories of Shilisha and stuff, gone round, and then come back into the territory of Benjamin and then they would have eventually gone to this area of Zuf. So they've kind of done a whole circle, northwest, round and back down again. Um, and while the first two verses of our chapter serve to describe something of Saul's physical appearance, that he was handsome, that he was tall and so forth, these next verses serve to describe something of Saul's character. In these verses we learn that Saul respected his father, he listened to his father's request. We also saw that Saul obeyed his father. Uh, he looked, um, he took a servant and went donkey hunting as his father had commanded. And what's more, Saul cared about his father because after the, the search started to prove fruitless, he determined to return for fear that his father would start worrying about him. So he respected his father, he obeyed his father, he cared about his father. This is good character um, profile for Saul. Sadly in time, we learn that he doesn't have that same character where his heavenly father is concerned. Saul did not respect his heavenly father. We see that in the fact that he carried out an illegal sacrifice. Saul did not obey his heavenly father. He fails to kill King Agag as commanded. And Saul did not care about his heavenly father because he kept the spoil he'd been ordered to destroy. You see, on the horizontal, when it comes to looks, his relationship with man, Saul was a good candidate for king. But when it comes to the vertical, when it comes to his heart, his relationship with God, Saul was not a good candidate for king. Eventually, Saul and his servant finds themselves in the land of Zuf, and Zuf uh, has actually been mentioned already once in the book of uh, Samuel, in 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And it tells us that Zuf is a forefather of Elkanah, Elkanah the father of Samuel. 
So we've got this area, this land, named after one of Samuel's forefathers, and right in the heart of this land is Ramah, where Samuel lives. So their search for these donkeys has providentially led them right to the door of Ramah, the city where Samuel lives. So <clears throat> they've been donkey hunting for three days. Saul is starting to be concerned that his father is worrying about his son's well-being. So God orchestrated that as Saul wants to end his search, so he ends up in the very place God wants him to be. And while Saul is prepared to go home, his servant has a different idea. Let's read from verse 6. And he, that is the servant, said to him, Look now, there is in, in this city a man of God, and he is an honourable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered, Saul again and said, Look, I have here a hand at hand, one fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now Saul's servant appears to be familiar with the area that they're in. He knows that this is the city where a man of God dwells. He's also familiar with this prophet Samuel, suggesting that they consult this man of God concerning the lost donkeys. But it's telling that Saul is ignorant of this, of this city and ignorant of uh, who Samuel is especially so considering it's in the tribal area of Benjamin where, um, uh, where um, Saul lives. After all, Samuel was renowned throughout the whole of Israel, yet Saul didn't know who Samuel was. What's that about? What's more, Saul lived so close to the God's appointed judge where you'd go to for final justice, but was unaware of him. What's that about? This is a spiritual marker for us, that Saul had little regard for the things of God. You see, if he'd attended the annual feasts, he would have encountered Samuel then. So it kind of tells us that Saul was irreligious. Like many people today, he wasn't against God he simply didn't make God a vital part of his life. And this is a dangerous portent for the future of Israel because they're getting a king with little knowledge or care for God. In fact, it is the servant who has the knowledge and the regard for God, it would seem. Saul may become king, but the servant is the one with the true riches because he's the one who seems to know God. In Jeremiah 9, verse 24, we're told, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Our goal in life should not be an elevated status in the eyes of the world as King, would get, as king Saul would get, 
but our goal in life should be a knowledge and an experience of the true and living God. That's true riches. We also have a, an historical marker here. Three times Saul is referred to as a man of God. We've already seen that that's a reference to a prophet. However, the term used in the days that this account was, uh, uh, was speaking of is seer. Quite literally, seer, one who sees. Referring to how this person would see things that the Lord showed them. Although at the time of the book being written, this, this term seer has fallen out of use, being replaced by the term prophet, which shows us that the book of Samuel was clearly written some time after these events. And the fact that the book of Samuel goes all the way through to the end of David's life, it would be reasonable to say that the book of Samuel was largely compiled and put together at the time of Samuel, uh, of, uh, of David's death, sorry, and uh, the beginning of Solomon's reign, again to prove that David was the right uh, king and that his Solomon was the rightful heir to the throne. So the servant's suggestion is initially met with objection. You know, we can't go to the seer, we have no gift. But the servant proves his invaluable worth because not only does he have good advice, he also has good wisdom in the fact that he has thought to bring a measure of silver with him. So they can use that silver as a gift to the seer. So the obstacle now overcome, the pair head towards the city where Samuel can be found. Verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he, uh, he came to this city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So as Saul and his servant approached the city, they encountered women as they're going out to draw water. In the ancient world, it was the duty of women to go and collect water from a cistern or a well. And we see this many times in scripture. Abraham's servant met Rebecca when she came to draw water from the well. Jesus met the Samaritan woman when she came to draw water from the well. And the time typically for drawing water would be early evening, where the sun had gone down and it wasn't so hot, so you were doing heavy labour carrying the water and it wasn't so overbearing in the sun. And it seems to me that the women were in a chatty mood because they don't just give a short answer, they give a rather long and detailed answer. Um, and why not? I mean, here comes a tall, handsome stranger. What's not to like? We'll have a good old conversation here. And uh, I don't know quite how it went. We've got an abbreviated abbreviation of the conversation here, but I kind of imagine that uh, they say, is the seer here? And they say, oh, you're a poet and you don't know it. Yeah, stop it, we're looking for the prophet. Maybe not. The women indicate that Samuel is about to leave the city and uh, they bid him hurry uh, as he's about to bless a sacrifice on the high place 
Now, a high place was a geographically elevated site where worship took place. Uh, and in the absence of a tabernacle, because Shiloh had been destroyed, Israel began offering sacrifices on the high places to God. And it seems as if this act proves acceptable to God at this point in their history. However, once the temple is constructed, the high places were no longer acceptable places of sacrifice. In fact, the high places became places of idolatry and pagan worship, a place of offence. But at this moment in time, they seem to be acceptable to God. And the women assure Saul that they were, when they enter the city, they will meet Samuel. And sure enough, as Saul and his servant walk into the city, they meet Samuel coming out of the city on his way to the high place. So, verse 15 to 17. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Samuel came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. So there's two sides to every story. So far we've only had Saul's side, now we're privy to Samuel's side. While Saul is dependent on providence to guide him, Samuel hears directly from the Lord. This in itself is telling. It speaks of how Samuel has a close walk with God, but Saul doesn't have that walk with a God. That's why it's got to, God's got to use providence with Saul, but God can speak directly to Samuel. And, uh, telling, and what God does is he tells Samuel in advance what is going to happen. Uh, in fact, a full day in advance uh, that uh, Saul is going to come and that you're going to need to anoint him as king. And then at the very moment of Saul's arrival, he confirms that this is the man I was telling you about. He gives him a personal identification. He gives Samuel a personal identification as to who Saul is. This is like a word of knowledge, if you like. And the Lord had said, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Even though Israel had rejected God as their king, God was still in control. God was the one who sent Saul to Samuel. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. God did not step off his throne just because Israel had asked him to. He sent them a king as they requested, but he sent them a flawed king to a flawed Israel. He sent a flawed king to a flawed Israel. Interestingly, Samuel is told not to anoint him king, but to anoint him commander over my people Israel. This is a military uh, anointing almost that he's saying. And part of the calling of the king is to defend the country from foreign invaders. And we know that the Philistines were still in occupation. They'd been subdued, but not eradicated. And uh, in the intervening time, the Philistines were still an oppressive force. So it would be Saul's job to save Israel from the Philistines. That Saul would be a king, though, is in no doubt, because uh, the, our verse ended, this one shall reign over my people. 
Saul may not be God's perfect plan, yet in his appointment we see the compassion of God towards his people Israel because it says there, uh, I, 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 I have, I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. This is very similar language, isn't it, to that used in the call of Moses in Exodus 3, 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God hears the cries of his people, and he responds with compassion. He sees their sorrows, he sees their griefs, he sees the burdens they're under, and he moves from that place of compassion to help them. Even if we're not quite in the right place with God like Israel, we have a God who is sensitive to our needs and who responds to us with compassion. Hallelujah. Verses 18 to 21. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that they were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? I like the simple humility that we see in Samuel here. It's a good example for us to adopt. Samuel was the judge of Israel. He was the chief magistrate, not only of the city, but of the nation. He was a prophet of God. He was a priest of honour at this sacrifice on the high place, a prophet who heard directly from God. Yet he walked and dressed like a common man. He had no escort, he had no retinue to suggest his status, so that Saul just simply assumed him to be an ordinary citizen who could direct him to the seer's house. Leadership is not a vehicle for self-promotion. The foremost qualification for leadership is humility, and Samuel had that in abundance. God gives grace to the humble, it says in James 4, 6. This is a good example for us to follow. Are we humble, or are we wanting people to look at us as if we've got some sort of status or importance? Now that Saul was face to face with the seer, he must have been pleased, yet the brief exchange that followed, I've got to say, must have blown his mind. Was he expecting any of this? I don't think so. First of all, Saul was looking for this seer and, whoa, this is the guy right in front of me. Wow, praise the Lord. Second of all, Saul would be found out that he'd be feasting with the most important man in Israel that evening. Wow, what a result. Then Samuel had a special message for Saul. His donkeys were found and had been returned to his father. Mind-blowing stuff. It's three days of hunting, and yet uh, Samuel knew exactly what the situation was. But the biggest uh, blowing of his mind was that Saul said all the desire of Israel was fixed on Saul. There was a desire 
that the whole of Israel had and, they, and it, that desire was focused upon Saul. What was the desire of Israel? For a king. The desire of Israel was for a king. And Saul would fulfill that desire. Now Saul clearly understood the meaning of Samuel's words as he protests his unsuitability. First of all, he describes himself as a man from the smallest of the tribes, and then he talks about himself as being the least family in that tribe. Uh, some of that's true, some of that's not so true. He was certainly a man from the smallest of the tribes. You might remember at the book of Judges, there's an account there of all the other tribes of Israel mounting a campaign against Benjamin, and Benjamin was severely decimated in numbers. It was a small tribe in numbers. So yes, he is a man from the smallest of the tribes. But as from the least family in the tribe, I don't know about that. We know that Saul's family was very wealthy. It says as much in the passage. What's more, his father was a mighty man of power, a man of power and presence. Still, Saul has something of a humility here. And I guess Saul's trying to rationalise what Samuel has said. As far as he's concerned, it doesn't add up. He's just come looking for donkeys. He wasn't expecting to ask to be the king of the whole of Israel. And so his conclusion is simply put, why then do you speak like this to me? He can't quite digest all that he's been told. Verse 22. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honour among those who were invited. There are about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said uh, I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. So Samuel continues his journey from the city to the high place and uh, taking Saul and his servant with him. The city, as I've said, is Ramah, Samuel's hometown, and the high place appears to have had a hall or a dining chamber of some form at the top and a place for dignitaries and invited guests to eat. And Saul and his servant um, are given a place of honour at the table. Uh, now, ancient Middle East dining was not as it is today, not with a table and chairs all sitting round facing one another. You would have entered into the food and dining reclining. And what you would do is you would lean upon your left side and then your feet would be behind you and your head towards the table where you would eat. And then the person next to you would uh, recline next to you with their head near your chest and stuff. So you're close to each other for talk and conversation. And uh, the place of honour would be immediately to the left of the host. And it seems as if both the servant and um, uh, Saul had the place of honour. So there would have been Samuel in the middle. Saul would have the most honourable place to the left of Samuel. And the servant would have had, would sat on the right. It's interesting, if you were to go to the Last Supper, we know that Jesus was uh, in, in the central place, but the place of most honour on the left of Jesus was given to Judas. And in the second place of honour on the right 
was given to the Apostle John. So we've got a kind of situation there. Um, uh, that's the kind of setup. So we, uh, but Samuel is a guest of honour at this table. And what's more, so, not Samuel, Saul is the one with a place of honour at this table. I'm getting my Saul's and my Samuel's mixed up this morning. I've probably done it five times already, but I hope you can follow what I'm talking about. Saul was also given the choice portion of meat. Now, uh, according to Leviticus 7, uh, verses 32 and 33, this was the right thigh of the sacrifice. And it was the portion set aside for the priest. But Saul was given this right thigh and was bidden to eat it. So this was turning into quite a strange day for Saul. Uh, encountering the prophet, hearing this word about the donkeys, then hearing that he was to be the object of the desire of the whole of Israel, given the place of honour at a feast, and given the choice portion. This is, this is, this is, this is definitely an Ebenezer for um, Saul. Okay, and then concluding the chapter we read. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the serpent to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. So once the meal was concluded, the company returned from the high place back to the city. No doubt Saul and his servant lodged at Samuel's house. And it seems as if Samuel and Saul talked well into the night on the top of the house. Now the nature of that conversation is not recorded for us. But I suggest Saul relayed his account of events that led him to Ramah. Then Samuel relayed how the Lord had spoken and guided him. Perhaps more details of what it meant to be king were communicated, as Saul sought clarification on Samuel's words from earlier. What's more, well, we don't know for sure, but what, we, what would have happened is, of course, at some point, sleep would have overtaken them, uh, because Samuel gives Saul a wake-up call in the morning, telling him to get up, that I may send you on your way. Samuel clearly doesn't like his guests overstaying their welcome and wants them up and out as soon as he possibly can. He's got stuff to do. So Samuel accompanies Saul and his servant out of the city, yet as, uh, as they get in on the outskirts, uh, Samuel seeks a private discourse with Saul. So the servant goes on ahead, and then comes an auspicious statement. You stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. Samuel has a word for Saul. And what follows will change Saul's life forever. But what also follows will change the life and the future of Israel forever. Things will never be the same after he gives this word. And if you want to know what that word is, you're going to have to come back next time, or you can read ahead if you like. But just to say this, if you are ever concerned that you might miss out on God's will for your life, don't. If by divine providence God can guide Saul, a man with no evidential regard for God, to the place he wants him to be, 
then God will surely guide you, a person who clearly has regard for God, to the place he wants you to be. Like Samuel, God is looking for the humble. Like Saul, God is looking for the obedient. Like the servant, God is looking for the faithful. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He will guide you in the way of life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words this morning. And I pray, Father God, that you would guide us in paths of righteousness. Help us to honour you, Lord, with our words, with our thoughts, with our speech. And help us to answer your call upon our lives to be the people that you want us to be, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.